neighbor, you are listening to the New Garden Church Podcast. We're glad you're here. This year, we are walking through the whole Bible together as a church family, day by day and week by week. We're meeting online right now, but we normally meet at 10 a.m. at DuPont Tyler Middle School in Hermitage, Tennessee. You can catch our weekly gatherings live by checking out our website at www.newgarden.church backslash online. We would love to hear from you. If you're local in the Nashville area, we'd like to let you know about something we are hosting in a couple weeks. On Saturday morning, January 30th, we will be hosting a mobile food pantry at DuPont Tyler Middle School, and we'll be literally giving away a truckload of free food to whoever has use for it. So you can go ahead and spread the word or make plans to join us then. For more information, you can check out www.forhermitage.com. This week, we finished Genesis on our journey through the Bible with Jeff giving us a message centered around the life of Joseph. We hope that you enjoy what you hear today and check back in with us again soon. Welcome to week three of our series, Long Story Short. Hopefully you have figured out by now what we are doing. We're taking an entire year to read through the Bible and we've challenged the whole church to do some sort of daily reading plan. Some of us are reading every verse in the Bible, others a chapter a day, others a few scriptures. But the main goal, again, is developing a habit of spending time in God's Word every day this year. It is day 17. We only have 348 days to go. We have a long story to cover, a short time to get through it, so let's get started. Now, if you're doing the full version of the reading plan, we will finish the book of Genesis today. One book down, you have read 20% of the Torah Way to go. Now, the final chapters of Genesis follow the story of Joseph. These chapters are what kids, ministers refer to as VBS gold. You've got a mix of characters, exciting plot lines, love and hate, revenge and forgiveness, and you get to build Egyptian pyramids for your backdrop. So that's pretty cool. Now, this morning is going to be kind of like a story time. So go ahead and grab a spot on the circle carpet or get comfortable on the couch because the story of Joseph is not only exciting and inspiring. It does a great job of capturing what the essence of Genesis is all about. But we'll get to that at the very end. Now, before we dive into this ancient story, I want to look at a more recent story. As introduction, here is a flag. Does anybody know what country this flag belongs to? If you do, post it in the chat. I'll be super impressed. And equally impressed if you spell it right. Uh, This is the flag of the country Mozambique. In case you ever need to find it on a map, it is on the southeastern side of Africa. There are about 31 million people who live there, and it's a unique country for many reasons. One of those is their flag. It's the only country in the world to have an AK-47 on their flag, which we might think is a strange thing to put on your national flag, but the symbol tells a story. Mozambique was colonized by Portugal about 500 years ago, and it wasn't until 1975 that they gained their independence and tried to form their own government. But only two years uh, into it, as different groups were vying for power, a civil war broke out that lasted 15 years, from 1977 until 1992. And at the end of the war, the population was about 13 million people. And it's estimated that during the civil war, over a million people were killed. Five and a half million people lost their homes. A million and a half fled the country. 15 years marked by violence, death, bloodshed, much of which at the end of a gun. 
Now, this gun is symbolized on their flag as a symbol for their fight for independence, but it also is a constant reminder of the violence that was suffered. But there was this Anglican bishop named Denise Salomon Sangoulan who envisioned a way forward to bring peace to their country. He created a program that people could surrender their guns of war in exchange for useful tools such as plows and books and bicycles. Over 600,000 guns have been collected. And then a group of Christian artists got together and they formed this association to turn these weapons into art. And in 2004, these four artists, they cut up and they melted down weapons and they formed this. They call it the Tree of Life and it sits in the British Museum. It's over 10 feet tall and it's not just a tree, but there are insects and different creatures that surround it as a way to show this image of flourishing. Now we just read about the Tree of Life a couple weeks ago in the opening pages of the Bible, but that's not the only place it shows up. In December, When we read John's revelation, his vision of this new creation, a restored heaven and earth, he envisions a city, but it's also a garden and a mountain and a temple, like all this imagery melted together and out of the temple flows a river. And next to that river, the tree of life stands. And he says that the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And so the tree of life is a symbol of hope. It's a a symbol of God restoring life and healing and a renewed flourishing to humanity. And so when these artists think about how to make a statement about what they have experienced, but the hope that they have through the gospel, they form as a symbol of that hope, the tree of life. But the medium they use are pieces of machine guns that without doubt shed blood and took lives. So what is the story that this is telling? Because of the resurrection of Jesus, because of the gospel, we know God is taking our world somewhere and that gives us hope. But that hope does not cancel out or ignore the tragic violence, the bitterness, the selfishness, and the tragedy of sin and death in our world. But it is out of that tragedy that God weaves a new story, and He's able to make something beautiful. This sculpture tells the story of the gospel, which is the story of the Bible, and it is a great picture of what is happening in the book of Genesis, and specifically the story of Joseph. So, Joseph, so keep this image in your brain as we jump into chapter 37. Now, we're going to read quite a bit of this story today, so hopefully we'll let the story do its work on us. Okay, so verse 1, chapter 37. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. So let's remember the context of where we are. The first 11 chapters so far have been about God and the world. God creates a good world and humans take things into their own hands and make a mess of the place because of sin and rebellion. But then in chapter 12, we're introduced to God's rescue plan. He elects a family through whom blessing and salvation will spread to all humanity. So God chooses Abraham and his family and makes them this promise. Um, And then as you read through the story, the promise gets repeated to Abraham's son Isaac and Isaac's son Jacob, whose name gets changed to Israel. you got to kind of keep up with the names in the storyline. Now, as uh, hopefully as you've read through these stories over the past few weeks, are these good guys or bad guys? Well, they're kind of both. Like they have their good moments for sure, but they also make a lot of really dumb, terrible decisions. And at times they struggle with faith. And I think that's that's part of the point of these stories. They're not just heroes of the faith. They are real people. And that helps us find ourselves in the story because we're real people. We feel the struggle of good and bad in our lives. I mean, think about Jacob slash Israel. Jacob means hill grabber, tripper, deceiver. Israel means wrestles with God. 
but he's such a dummy, right? Like he's a liar and a thief, but God sticks with him. Not because God approves of his choices and behavior, but because God is committed to working out his salvation in the midst of these stubborn, stupid humans. And that's good news for us, right? Who's stubborn and stupid? I am. Okay. So we read these stories and we think, why would God continue to bless these people and work with these people? But he continues to bless and work with us, right? Like he gives us salvation and loves us. And I know us. So when we read these stories, instead of writing them off all the time, we should maybe start writing us in because this is our story. The mistakes these people made thousands of years ago are the same mistakes we make today. And so we're going to look at one last story in Genesis. Now we've heard about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob has a bunch of sons. Uh, One who is named Joseph, verse 2. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. So if you haven't read the story, uh, this can get confusing because there's all these wives and sons and there's this internal sibling rivalry. So Jacob slash Israel had four wives. And sometimes people read this and think, well, if he had four wives, why can't we have four wives? Well, just because something is in the Bible doesn't mean it's a directive from God or God wants that to happen. Because how did four wives turn out for Jacob? Not great. Uh, He gets tricked into marrying Leah. He really only loves Rachel. And then Zilpah and Bilhah seem like pawns to Leah and Rachel to fight for Jacob's attention. You talk about a family in chaos. And then you have all these sons from these different women, and they all seem to ruffle each other's feathers. But they have a common enemy in one of their brothers, Joseph. He's daddy's favorite. Like he gets the new car. He doesn't have a curfew. But the defining gift in the story is this robe, an ornate robe. Now, we don't really know what this word means. It could be striped or seamless or patched or technicolor dream coat, you know. But we know its significance. It's special. It shows that he's Jacob's most love. Now, you would think that Jacob would have learned a lesson from his parents about having favorite sons or a lesson from his grandparents about having favorite sons. But remember, these are humans. These people are us. We don't learn so easily. So the story repeats. Jacob slash Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Now, this seems to have an effect on Joseph's character, but not a good one, because we're told he's out with his brothers in the field, probably learning how to shepherd from his brothers. He's like an apprentice. And then he returns to his father with a bad report, like he's an expert on how things should be done. Or maybe he thinks like he should be treated as the favorite son out there. You know, dad, they made me clean up the sheep poop, you know, and they made me go chase the mean bully goat and it got dirt on my coat. Like the word here could mean gossip or slander. Like he's a tattletale. Now we don't know what he said, but the rift between the brothers, continues to break. And then it gets worse. Verse 5, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field, when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. 
So side lesson, there are some things better left unsaid, right? Like this is not how you win friends and influence people. Oh, listen to my dream about how you guys are going to bow down to me. And the rift gets wider and it gets worse. Verse nine. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now, an important thing to remember about how the Bible works. When the biblical authors want to challenge us or teach us something about God or yourself or the world, they don't give you like this box with bullet points. Number one lesson, number two lesson. It would be nice if they did, but what do they do? They tell you a story. Like they paint a picture of the world and they share a story to challenge how you think about yourself and about God. So looking at this story, where is God? Has he been mentioned at all? No. Like right now, it seems like it's just a story about this dysfunctional family. But you keep reading. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. Now you read this and you think, do you have to include this guy? He's like Stan Lee writing himself as an extra into a Marvel movie. He doesn't seem to be necessary to the story, but that's the cool thing about the Bible. It's realism. This guy seems like an unneeded part of the story, but he is included because he is part of the story. It continues, but they saw him in the distance and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So who is Reuben? He's the oldest brother. He's the one who will lead the family when Jacob dies. But does he appear to be this strong leader? Is he standing up for what is right, setting his brother straight? No, he's trying to do something that's right in saving Joseph, but the unrighteous acts are not being accounted for. Maybe he thinks they'll just learn their lesson without having to face any consequences. And the biblical author gives us a wink and says, is this an applicable lesson for you, right? Uh, but Reuben's plan, it doesn't work because... So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and they threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Now, have we heard about Egypt before? Hmm. It seems like the story is headed somewhere. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, 
He is our brother, our only flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took him to Egypt. Now this is a story for primetime TV. Love and hate, violence and revenge, sibling rivalries. A very interesting, well-told story. But we have to remember, it's part of a bigger picture. Like there are things to learn from these different scenes, but these up-close scenes fit together in a bigger story of Joseph. And that story fits together in a bigger story of Jacob. And that fits in a bigger story of Isaac and Abraham. But they all fit together in a bigger story we talked about last week. Humans have ruined God's world and God is doing something to rescue the world through the family of Abraham. And who is the family of Abraham? These people right here. This is the rescue team. And it's like, what on earth is going on? God is going to bring blessing to all nations and families through this bunch of two-faced, murderous, hypocritical jerks. But where is God in the story? Has he been mentioned? No. Does that mean he's absent? No. He's been silent, but that does not mean he's not involved in what's happening. So they sell their brother. They kill a goat, they put the blood on the coat, and they send it to their father to see if he recognizes it. Jacob recognizes it as his son and concludes his son is dead. Now, there's an interesting connection to the deception story from chapter 27 when Jacob deceives his father Isaac by killing a goat and putting on a garment. And the biblical writer kind of winks at us and says, it's good, right? Goats and garments, same same thing. And then chapter 38 takes a detour into Judah's life, and it's kind of rated R. We don't need to go into it today. Hopefully you read it on your own. But then you get to chapter 39. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. So you're 17 years old, You've been kidnapped, you've been sold to slave traders, taken to a foreign country, you don't know uh, where you are, you don't know the language, you're now a house slave to a military captain. Like, how do you feel about your life? Maybe you think, well, I'm dad's favorite, he's gonna come and he'll rescue me, but how long, how many years have to go by before that hope is no longer like a viable hope to hold on to? So his life is over. But, verse two, the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. So what's the promise to Abraham? Through your family, blessing will come to all nations. We start to see that here. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. So things are happening in Joseph's life. Is he rescued from the situation? No. But within the situation, God is at work, blessing. God meets him there. Does God solve all his problems? No, but he meets him in the midst of this very dark time in his life. This is the author's clue about how God is at work in the world. Who is responsible for Joseph ending up where he is? His brothers, right? They meant to do him harm. They sold him into slavery. Is that what God wants? No, but God is at work behind the scenes, redeeming weaving something beautiful out of the mess of human sin. The story continues. Now Joseph was well built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, 
Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. All right, let's just pause for a moment and think about this. First, who does Joseph say this would be a sin against? Potiphar? No. I mean, that would be true, but he says it's a sin against God. Hmm. Now, the last time we saw Joseph speak in the story, we heard him bringing gossip from the fields and dreams of self-grandeur. He spoke like this punk little kid. Is that who we see now? No, now we see, he seems to be like this changed man, a man of integrity and honesty, a man who wants to honor God with his whole life and every part of his body. Like something has happened to him. And again, the author isn't going to give you a footnote that you look up and it says, Dear reader, God uses hardship to teach you lessons and develop your character. Right? Instead, you get a story where you see this annoying teenager who used to provoke his brothers, and God used hardships in Joseph's life to chip away the rough edges and do deep character formation in Joseph. And so the sufferings that Joseph goes through are both the worst thing that ever happened to him and also the best thing that ever happened to him. And the story embraces this paradox of hardship in our lives. One day, he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. Bum, bum, bum. She caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, This Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me, and he ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me, and he ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And I read this story and I think, well, that's not fair. Like, where is God? Why isn't he playing a part? I expect God to show up and do something for this guy who's trying to do the right thing. And maybe this has happened in your life when you're trying to do the right thing. And yet it appears like your life is falling apart. I mean, yeah, Joseph used to be this bratty kid, but he's doing the right thing here. Has God abandoned him? Has God abandoned you? Oh, maybe God isn't good. Maybe God isn't in control. But what this story is saying is precisely the opposite. The fact is, things are not out of control. Now, who is responsible for Joseph's trouble here? Is it God? No, it's Potiphar's wife. It's her sin and her selfishness. Like, God did not cause it, but He can use it. He can redeem it. He can weave it into the story. He can bring a tree of life out of machine guns. So Joseph ends up in prison. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. Now, hopefully you read this story a couple of days ago, but Joseph once again gets into trouble due to somebody else's decisions, but God blesses him and allows him to rise to a position of influence where he is. Joseph seems to be making the right decisions, and yet disaster seems to surround him. But God is at work behind the scenes. And what this story is getting at is that 
life is very ambiguous for most of us. Sometimes we end up in difficult situations because of our own bad decisions. Like we had it coming, like that bratty teenager. But other times, things happen to us that are not our fault. Like we have hardship and tragedy and we say, where is God? And the story says, hold on. Just because hardship happens in your life does not mean God's not around. There could be a bigger story unfolding. And with Joseph, we get to see that bigger story. Now, oftentimes, we don't have that luxury in our own lives, which is why the perspective we get from reading Scripture helps inform our own stories. Now, we're going to skip to the end, but hopefully you read this week about Joseph and this crazy set of circumstances where like, he ends up in jail and through a friend, he ends up meeting Pharaoh and interpreting some dreams. And then he becomes an advisor to the king of Egypt and guiding the country through a time of famine, saving like tens of thousands of lives. And wouldn't you know, some of the people who come to get food are his brothers, which is another exciting story. But eventually he reveals to them who he is. And he gets his whole family to come down to Egypt. He's reunited with his father. Everybody cries. Like, it's a beautiful story. But eventually, his father, Jacob, dies. And in verse 15 of chapter 50, we read this. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. So his brothers are back at their deception. And what is Joseph's response? He weeps. Like over the loss of his father, I think, but I also think about his brothers not growing in character like he has. And so he tries to teach them something. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. And so Joseph's dream is fulfilled, right? Here they are, bowing down. And you would expect this bratty teen to return and say, Boom! I told y'all you would bow down to me, you bunch of chumps. I told you. But what does Joseph do? What does he say? This man who has been changed and shaped by his hardship. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Like literally you intended raw or bad, but God intended good. So these are the final couple sentences of Genesis. And there's a reason that they're at the very end. The writer is trying to clue us in on what this book is all about. In one sentence, here is the book of Genesis and ultimately the entire Bible. Is God responsible for Joseph going through hardship? What does Joseph say? No, his brothers are. You intended to harm me, but God is at work. He did not allow your evil to thwart his plan. Ultimately, he's working it out. And the author is inviting us to take a view of how God works in the world. It's not a view most of us would prefer. We prefer the version we're going to see in Exodus, where God sends down fire on the oppressors. Like, we like that story. It's simple. It's clean. But this is not a clean or simple story. This story embraces the ambiguity of our day-to-day lives and the struggles to have faith with God's promises and His presence. And this book is teaching us a simple lesson that your story is not over. You don't know what God is up to. And you may or may not have the luxury of seeing in your lifetime the tree of life that God is forming out of your machine gun parts. So the book of Genesis puts the ball in our court. 
uh, we can choose whether or not we're going to accept this view of the world. If we're going to boldly take a, a step of faith and say, he did it in the life of Joseph, he did it in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, he has something in mind for my story too. There is a purpose, and I may not find out what that purpose is today, uh, because we probably all find ourselves at different parts of the story. Some of us can look back and see where God has been at work. Others of us are in the pit with Joseph, wondering what is going on. And this story is not an easy one, but it embraces the difficulty of the struggle to boldly trust in this God of the Bible who is at work in ways we may not see. Can you trust that He's doing something in your story? shaping you, bringing a tree of life out of death. Now, every week, no matter where we are in the Bible, we turn to the story of Jesus. It's pretty easy this week because Joseph's story has so many parallels to Jesus. I mean, think about it. Both are beloved sons of their father. Both resisted temptation. Both provided for people in need. Both were servants. Uh, Both were not recognized for who they were. Both were sold for silver. Both were falsely accused. Both embraced God's purpose, though it brought them intense physical harm. Both were stripped of their clothes. Both were placed between two criminals, one who is redeemed and one who faces destruction. Both are put in the ground, and both are raised from the ground. Both are promoted to a place of honor and glory. Both are an instrument of God to bring life out of death. Joseph's story is Jesus' story, and Jesus' story is our story. Now, we are not the Son of God, but we are sons and daughters of God. We are not the King, but we are citizens of the kingdom. We are not the Savior, but we are the saved. Because God was able to use the hardship of Jesus that He faced in His life and His death and His resurrection to bring us back into life with Him. So every week we take bread and a cup and we remember the sacrifice of Jesus, the hardship and the struggle of Jesus, which not only brings us the promise of eternal life, but gives us faith and hope and perspective in order to encounter that eternal life today. So let's meet Him at the table. As I'm recording this, I am aware that today is Martin Luther King Jr. Day, which is a day that we celebrate, and I would like to issue a challenge to anyone listening to do more than merely repost a quote without knowledge of context. Take 15 minutes today and read one of Dr. King's speeches or letters. The letter from a Birmingham jail is a great place to start, and I will put a link to that letter in our show notes so that you can easily find it. Let us seek a deeper understanding by listening and learning this week in order to do justice in our community. That's it for this week. Thank you for checking in with us and we'll be back with another episode next week.